1: August Bernadiku, I'm a 26-year-old gay historian. Yeah, so I am the president of the LGBTQ History Project, a nonprofit dedicated to preserving the um, stories of LGBTQ activists in the first wave of gay liberation. And we recently launched a podcast that celebrates the archival interviews I've done with LGBTQ activists since I was 13 years old.
2: That is the most amazing thing on the planet that you started doing that at 13. What made you a 13 year old decide to do that? Tell me like your story and uh, the listener, your story, like what, what, what sparked your interest?
1: So I grew up in Northern California. I always thought I was from a small town until I moved to New York City and met people that are from towns with, uh, with 10 people. And I felt really isolated and bored growing up. So I decided to start interviewing different musicians and artists and people in the creative field. And while I was doing that, I realized there was a whole community, a whole world out there that places like New York City existed. And I also realized that there are so many stories that have, haven't have been told by the person or haven't been told in general, and people need to learn those stories to help themselves learn about what happened and also learn about themselves.
2: That's, that's awesome. That's very insightful for you because, you know, teenagers in general are not like going, I know what I'll do. I'll just start talking to people. They're mostly like, I'm going to do my own thing and, you know, and be who I am and have my little core group of friends. Did you have a uh, pretty supportive uh, upbringing?
1: Yes. Uh, my family's been always supportive in the best way they can for having a non-traditional um, um, understanding of what I want to accomplish. So they've always been really supportive.
2: I love that. Did you, when you started having these conversations with everybody, I mean, you must just since, since you're 26 now and you started at 13 did you did you first of all you must have a lot of footage um and did you um just continue to do it even when you left home
1: oh yes yeah, so i've never stopped so by the time i when i was 13 through 18 i was writing for online and in print magazines And by the time I was 18, I had an ego trip and I thought, I'm just going to do this myself. So my format has always consistently been question-and-answer interviews. It's always been really important for me to people to tell their own stories in their own words. And Mm -hmm. I decided to publish a zine. However, it wasn't a traditional zine. It was 90 pages of just text and and question-and-answer interviews. The first issue sold 400 copies in a couple of months. And there's my doorbell, 400 copies in a couple of months. And from there, it really uh, took off, and I continued doing it. Um, and then about a year and a half ago, I decided to put out the, the gay interviews that I've done and just market that aspect of it.
2: That's so cool. I lo- I love all that. that that's, um, that's such a great... What did you do with them when you were 13, 14, and 15? Like, what did you do with the actual, like, um, you just, did you take the interviews and just put them on paper? Or did you, was there a platform back, what was the platform back then, actually? Yeah, so they were
1: on online uh, magazines, and um, some of them got 50,000 hits a month and things like that. And then also I shopped them around to different publications and different in-print magazines as well. And then I made the transition to becoming a one-man machine when I was 18.
2: That's so cool. What is – um? that's just great. Like, how – I mean, really, how many people actually can say that they, like, really, like, discovered the thing that they enjoy the most at such a young age like that, you know, and then just continue to do it? Um, I wish everybody could have that, <laughs> you know, like, really experience themselves at such a young age and to be open and – um obviously capture what you've captured uh and then set it off into the world i think it's, it's pretty pretty cool what um so for you like what was a typical um at 13 what was that like and when did you start interviewing queer people when did yeah, that
1: start picking? well at 13 years old i thought it was pretty cool i was getting free cds and free passes to concerts and backstage passes and going to events for free Um, and, um, excuse me, what was the second question?
2: Uh, when did you start, um, interviewing queer people?
1: Oh, excuse me. Well, there's always been tremendous overlap between, um, artists and creative people and, um, LGBTQ people. So it kind of naturally just fell into place. Um, some of the first people I interviewed were actually gay as well.
2: Oh, that's so cool. Did you? What was? <laughs> I mean, since you're so young, and uh sometimes, and you, well, you know, because when you interview people, sometimes the environments are, um, they are. How can I put this? Uh, <laughs> let me think. I can't even. So sometimes they're just like a lot, and then, and then the individual can sometimes be forthright. Um, and when you're young, how did you navigate that?
1: by them being a lot well i've always just been in the background i always just let them speak i don't try to dictate the questions a lot of the questions i ask are loaded because of my understanding of their story i try to invoke a specific response but um i just i let i just let them speak and as you know probably from my interview right now and all the interviews you've done is you can ask the question and it goes in a million different routes
2: yeah, no, it is true. Sometimes when I speak to people, um, sometimes it doesn't though. Sometimes when I talk to people, they're like, they're, they're, they're um, not as talkative, but then you get the ones that obviously want to really like showcase their stories. And I speak to teens a lot, um, with the podcast. So I've spoken to like over a hundred queer teens. It's kids are out, you know, trans too, like at nine years old or like even before that. Um, which is pretty fantastic to experience. Uh, did
1: you ever get any backlash going up with that? Backlash? Not yeah. so much. I've always just lived in my own world and not too mm-hmm. hung up on what other people think. I haven't let other people discourage me before. Um, and I've always just been determined enough to you know, do everything to the beat of my own drum and figure out what I want to do. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, learning about myself through the process as well. So as far as backlash, no, everyone's pretty been, uh, has fairly been uh, consistently supportive. And as we know, and as you know from your podcast, the nature of the beast is present yourself as some kind of teen idol. So that always helped.
2: Right, right. That's a good, that's a good point. Totally what, that is totally what that is. You're the first person, well, I guess because you know, you have some experiences, so you're the first person that actually said that. So that's what it becomes. Um, which is cool, too, because I love it. I love so many, like, I love stories, and I love listening to people talk, um, as much as we'd like to talk ourselves, so it's it's nice. Uh, what's your, um, what is your upbringing? What was it? What did you, what did you grow up? Um, how was your family? Like, uh, I'm always curious about that. Supportive, yes, but, like, what is your, um, background and stuff like that?
1: Well, I went to Catholic school, which um was actually a good experience for me because you have a whole different side of intellectualism and you're learning about um a lot of aspects that shaped american life and shaped our understanding of spirituality and um and you know I don't remember them telling us we're going to go to hell in fact in fourth grade I remember them talking about how um AIDS, HIV, was started by primates in Africa. And that's pretty progressive for the Catholic Church to say. And then when I was in college, I went to a Jesuit university as well. And um, as we know, Jesuits are not only the marines of the Catholic Church, but they're also the intellectual, artistic, um, education-driven, artsy, if you know what I mean, uh, uh, yeah. Denomination of the church as well, so I've I've I had a, a good upbringing in the sense that I was able to be intellectually stimulated, and I've I've always. I, I never really heard no in the terms of this is what I want to do. While people, you know, aren't always supportive and even today not even understanding is just because of their lack of ability to try to understanding uh, try to understand. Excuse me, what I'm doing and what I want to accomplish as well. So you know, th- I think those are always going to be the hurdles that someone like me and you come across. And you know they've just been consistent, you know, since my upbringing, trying to figure all this stuff out.
2: Yeah, no, I totally. God, I relate to that a lot. <laughs> I get it. I totally. Because I had a cool upbringing. Like I didn't. I didn't have. Other than being a teenager and the don't you know how you go through your normal teenager things? I think that's the thing I experienced. But for me, I was queer and I was out, and so pretty young and supportive family and um. I didn't have like a Catholic I had a Catholic upbringing but it wasn't a Catholic upbringing you know it was pretty much like Christmas Catholic upbringing you know one of those things go and go when you want um so I think that's I think that's like uh that's that's cool I mean you your energy and your intellect comes across so poignant and that's a good thing I think and I think it's pretty awesome um and I think maybe because of the work that you've been doing your whole life I mean truly your whole life uh has lent itself to that I, I I love that um with the um can you explain a little bit about the difference between what you do with the lGbt queer history project and then I know how it ties into the queer core pod, but like what exactly does the lGbt queer history um do for like the community and and carry and what does it carry with it uh to,
1: to continue the work yeah, essentially, it's my front for being able to um interview uh uh... members who were in the first wave of gay liberation uh, okay you know, it's the resource that i use to conduct the the interviews and also distribute them and then um, we also um, i also host hosted back when you could be in the same room with other people intergenerational right. dialogues which i truly believe are the only of its kind in the nation if not um, in most of the world and that essentially is me in conversation with gay elders and mm-hmm. it's not as much of an interview as it's a dialogue.
2: Have you heard of making gay history? Have you heard of that um podcast as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um
2: Yeah. Eric Marcus uh, is really awesome.
1: Yeah, he's one of the um unsung heroes <laughs> singing more loudly and loudly as time goes on about the history of the, um, LGBTQ community and has a similar, uh, had a similar trajectory, which I hope is going to be similar to mine.
2: Yeah. I, um, it's, he's so nice about it too. And he's like, yeah, and then, cause he's been doing it since 1988. And I was like, Eric, you literally captured so much history during the history of it happening so it's like it's it's just a it's pretty cool and uh who stands out to you the most inside of what you do um when you speak to someone like who who are the people i know everyone's pretty amazing but like who really just like took you by surprise and when you were like holy shit i just never knew i had no idea
1: well there's a few people who i credit to changing my life one of them um is someone i think about Several times a week, um, if that is what the question is referencing. Yeah, her absolutely. Name is, her name is Bambi Lake. Um, I call her the mother of us all, and uh, she was on the fringes of the were which were a radical theater troupe for whom mm-hmm. the term gender F was coined. Um, don't know if we can say that. And then she was. Part you can say of fuck. It doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Okay. <laughs> you can say. it. <laughs> very true. She then she was part of the Angels of Light, which were the free theater off of the Cockettes. And then for the next 35 years, she was a prominent and well-written about transgender performance in San Francisco, all the while battling horrible drug addiction, sleeping on the street, having to be a hooker. But she would just get back up on stage and sing in the smallest, sturdiest, cleanest, and... Um, largest clubs in san francisco i had always wanted to find her and one day when i was 18 years old i had her book in my backpack i was walking around and i i saw her with my baby sister who was horrified in the process she was homeless at this point um obviously high on drugs um making crazy comments to me and then uh Kind of was turned off by the experience, but always was thinking, what, who is this? who is this Bambi, and how do I find her again? So then a year later, I saw her at midnight at Carl's Jr. and she had completely um, cleaned up and had found housing. And from there, she has remained one of the most important people in my life who, whenever I see her in San Francisco, whenever I'm back home in San Francisco, I take her, I take her out to breakfast, buy her a carton and cigarettes, and we both smoke them together and drink coffee. And when, she, when I asked her what her greatest talent is, she said making people cry. And my line for her is, I figured if Lazarus could make a comeback, so could Bambi Lake. So she is someone who I think about often and play her songs and just just always want to help and take care of. Through Bambi Lake I met someone named Rumi Misabu who was a member of the cockettes. Also met him when I was eighteen. I walked into his apartment and he was wearing a nurse's gown and there was a gold dildo on the table and I thought, What the hell did I get myself into? Fast <laughs> forward fast forward eight years and I have four hundred hours of recordings with him. Um, while the Cockettes were only around for two years and Rumi was a member for one year, the most fascinating part of his story is that for the next 35 years of his life after the Cockettes, he lived completely underground without a driver's license, social security number, work record, uh, any form of identification. His only form of identification was an expired library card that said Rumi. Wow. And then- Lastly, um, if you don't mind, someone named Don Kilhefner, who uh, was an early member of the pioneering gay liberation front in Los Angeles, which is the first gay liberation group in America, according to uh, my feelings on their cause, he went on to found the L.A. LGBT Center, which has since become the largest L.A. excuse me, largest LGBT center in the world. And he also went to co-found the Radical Fairies. I have 200 hours with him. And something that um, is important to me about his story is that, uh, and about all of my work, is we're seeing people's stories and legacies being minimized and whitewashed, if not erased, in their Mm -hmm. lifetime, and even worse, after and unfortunately, so many people, similar to Dr. Don at a degree, have their legacies preserved, but certain facts are being changed by vested interest or people who want to believe in this whitewashed version of history.
2: Yeah, it's, um, That's such a great uh, point because a lot of people do believe that. Like a lot of people do.
1: So, yes. Even in
2: the que- even in the queer even in
1: the queer community. <laughs> well, even, probably more so than any other community. Right. Right now, our right. community, especially the younger generations, if not exclusively, uh, believe just because someone's face is on a T-shirt, that is um, what happened. If you don't mind me sharing about the next episode of the podcast which is extremely important to me and hopefully your young lesbian and queer um activists as well is about the story of the rainbow flag there is one man who claims he was the sole creator of the rainbow flag named gilbert baker and Mm -hmm. uh and that is not the case. The rainbow flags were made by a consortium of people in San Francisco. However, the original person who presented the story was named Fairy Argyle Rainbow, and it said that on her driver's license three years prior to the rainbow flag. She's the one Hmm. who presented it to the pride community. She was also a member of the Angels of Light, and they were refused to take name credit for anything, and then she moved to Japan as well. So this episode is a spotlight on her story, and there's also an oral history that features the man who ran the Gay Center it was created at, and someone who um, participated in the in the creation as well. And while it's not a takedown on Gilbert Baker at all, he deserves all the credit in the world for promoting it to what it is, it's just shed, showing a light on someone who was named Rainbow and presented the story and was able to tell, um, is finally able to tell, you know, her version of the process.
2: I'm hooked. I mean, that is just, see, to me, (laughs) God, I mean, I don't, don't think I'm weird, but I'm in love the way you speak and you present yourself. I already said it twice, but I think it's so poignant and fascinating and understanding and to the point of, like you just said too it's not like to discredit the person that like obviously made it the made it big but it's really to shed light a big light on where things really come from and that's obviously what our country is going through right now um, that's all i really push and dedicate myself towards because it just it's the only way to keep things moving and like you've done for so long in your life with these interviews and to really put um, those people those humans forward um, is so strong and powerful. And I think that's literally the only thing that keeps um, the empathy and the realization and the reality of like who made things the way they are for good or for bad, um, specifically in America, but in the world. Uh, yeah, that's just really, really amazing. You're amazing. I think I, you're awesome and I'm so glad I connected to you and uh it feels good to hear that too because sometimes you do get a little perturbed you know I know you know you, you might know this feeling but like sometimes you feel like god I'm doing so much but it's not getting out enough it's, it's more people need to know but uh I think we just need to keep doing it you know no I know we need to keep doing it uh and keep talking about it as much as we can do you do you think so <laughs> Do you agree
1: yes of course
2: yeah yeah um so uh with all that and with these with this podcast what's um what's next for yourself like what are you doing i mean you're obviously working on the podcast and continuing these stories and continuing the episodes but like what do you do what have you been doing like quarantine like what is next for you with with push getting it out there more
1: Yeah, so I already work until midnight every night on the podcast and the project. But, um, you know, just like with the podcast, we are trying to get the content out there in the most digestible format possible. And now that we have the means to and the team to, we're going to start putting out more in-depth interviews. Right now, I just focus on thousand-word transcripts of the interviews, which um, is about five minutes sometimes. And, um, some of the interviews are two hours, 30 minutes. So focus on that coming out. And then of course, when the time is right, there will be, there will be a massive expose on this all-star cast of characters.
2: That's awesome. That's so great. What have you specifically done for yourself in the process of the pandemic and everything? Have you found ways for yourself? I know you're busy, but have you found ways to give yourself that space and time? to allow yourself to actually see what you're doing and also see the people around you and, like, stay connected in, that, in other ways as well.
1: Yes, well, I um, don't really take care of myself in that sense. However, I do have friends that I hang out with, but usually it's go, go, go with me. And when people are saying they're not being productive in the quarantine and there's nothing to do, I haven't watched TV in five months. You have to find your passion and plug into it. So, yeah. um, you know, even just taking a walk in New York City is the most refreshing thing in the world. You feel the energy and I'll always have that respite from, from all of the activity where I'll be able to lounge at the piers or go to the park. And I do, I do see people, but I've always been go, go, go and not someone who's able to relax easily. So um, I've had a head start on this pandemic, it seems like, or the quarantine.
2: Right, exactly. You're like, oh, I got this. Campus. This is what I've been doing my whole life. Um, what, um, I usually ask my guests, what are some words of wisdom that you would give my queer teen youth listeners, my QT listeners, um, inside of everything?
1: <laughs> okay, here's a few. God helps those who help themselves, mm-hmm. burn the, leave the baggage behind, and, uh, Stay determined and don't let anyone tell you no, because usually they're wrong.
2: They're always wrong. Um, (laughs) That is great. Where can um, everybody find all that you do?
1: Yes. So you can go to augustnation.com, queercorepod.com, LGBTQ History Project on Instagram, and queercorepod on Instagram as well. Awesome. Thank you. And you so also Facebook.com oh, okay. slash LGBTQ History Project.
0: Well, thank you so much, August, for your time. You are amazing. Found out all about the LGBTQ History Project and QueerCorePod and August Nation. I'll give all the links inside of the description for the podcast, this episode. I would like to thank my on-air sponsors, Jose de la Cuesta and Michael J. Grabowskis. And I'm your host, Anthony Giorgio. Thank you for listening to another episode of QT, Queer Teen Podcast, encouraging the next generation of queer youth from across the world to stand up for what's right. And remember, listen, learn, love.